I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at the, at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. 
So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on anthology and go to book tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Today's episode has been sponsored by author Joe Piazza's new podcast, Under the Influence. Under the Influence is a deep dive into the mom internet, a place haunted by aspirational marketing where it feels like every other mom is a social media influencer trying to sell you something, all while posed in white kitchens that never seem to get messy with toddlers and cloth diapers that never ever leak, a bastion of carefully curated lives that are hashtag blessed. And behind this airbrushed perfection is money, so much money, billions and billions of dollars, a multi-billion dollar industry we never talk about. Journalist and mom of two, Joe Piazza, brings a keen reporter's lens to examine how we got here, what it all means, and how the commodification of motherhood is driving normal mothers to the brink. And through it all, she wonders if she should just join the ochre-hued ranks of the momstagrammers, if she too can make thousands of dollars off beautiful photos of bath time, frolicking in fields of purple flowers, and posing her newborn next to a beautiful latte, and if this is the future of content. Check it out. Joe Piazza's Under the Influence. Hi, everybody. Today is the last day of the February Book Blast. It's been a five-day blast with multiple episodes per day because so many have collected that I just had to get them out into the world. On Monday, it was Memoir Monday, then Nonfiction Tuesday, Literary Fiction Wednesday, New Novels Thursday, and today is a more family-themed Memoir Day. So I hope you have enjoyed the blast this week. There have been so many episodes, and it's a short month, but why not listen? Get exposed to some new authors. I hope you've enjoyed it and enjoyed today's blast last day. Peter Ho Davies is the author of A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself. Peter's novel, The Fortunes, won the Annisfield Wolf Award and was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. He's also the author of The Welsh Girl, longlisted for the Booker Prize, and a London Times bestseller, as well as two critically acclaimed collections of short stories. His fiction has appeared in Harper's, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, and Granta, and has been anthologized in Prize Stories, The O. Henry Awards, and Best American Short Stories. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's a pleasure to be here. So we are talking about your beautiful book, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself, which is fiction. Although when I was reading it, I was positive it was nonfiction. And I had to keep like flipping back until I saw this tiny little novel word on the cover. Anyway, would you mind telling listeners what the book is about and what inspired you to write it? 
Sure, it is. It is a novel, although certainly parts of it are true. I like to think the whole is fictional, even if parts sort of derive from real experience. And it's a novel about parenting, you know, with some of the familiar trials and tribulations of that. But one that I hope starts from an unfamiliar place and maybe even defamiliarizes that experience, since it starts with an abortion. The couple involved at the center of the book, their first pregnancy is sort of interrupted by some pretty catastrophic prenatal test results. They choose to not have that child. And even though later they go on to have a second successful pregnancy and have a child, I think that experience of parenting for them is sort of shadowed, but also maybe in some ways also illuminated by that sense of loss from the first pregnancy as well. So that's roughly the the, the tenor of the book. It's interesting you mentioned that sense of, you know, fiction, memoir, the kind of blurry line between those two things. And there is something of that going on in this space. I, I feel like I, I need to take the fifth in terms of explaining what's true and what's not. Partly because, you know, I think for most of us in our lived experience, memory itself is a kind of means of fiction. So if I look back on some of these experiences, I'm not quite sure where reality gives over to fiction in some ways along the way too. But I think in a way that uncertainty for the reader is in part intentional on my part, because I think what the characters go through, that the book is very much about the uncertainty of diagnosis, I think, in many ways. That sense of, oh, this might be 99% this way, but there's a small sliver of a chance that it might go in the other direction. And I think in a way for the reader to wonder, is this part true? Is this part fiction? Is a way of giving them a glimpse into the experience of the characters themselves. So that's, that's sort of the notional idea behind that slight uncertainty that the book breeds in the reader as well. And the book, it wasn't only about the uncertainty that comes with whether or not to have a child and the, and the test results, but it's even as the child gets older, what do you do when things don't seem to be going 100% the way they should? And I'm sure so many parents can relate to this, right? You think that, you know, your child will pass flying colors with, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, I don't know, jumping or climbing or monkey bars or something. And then all of a sudden they don't. And what does that mean? And then there's all that anxiety and so much accompanying worry. And then what do you do? And this novel delves right into that from the dad's point of view, which I found so refreshing because there, I just feel like there aren't that many beautiful literary works about fatherhood, whereas I feel like there are many more about motherhood. Oh, thanks for saying that. I really appreciate that. I do think there's a deep anxiety for all of us, right? Even in sort of like the, the the most, you know, smoothest parenting experiences, and I guess none of them are actually genuinely all that smooth. We're worried about all those benchmarks, all those percentiles. We're anxious about, you know, inevitably, even though we wish we didn't, comparing our children to other children, you know, whether statistically or whether in the playground, however it might play out, I think, in some ways. And I think there's a kind of a kind of tyranny of the normal, right? That we want our children, we yearn for our children to sort of fit within recognizable spaces, maybe sometimes a space that looks like our own childhood. So we feel reassured that they're having an experience that we recognize in some ways, or that they're having a, an experience that feels as though it's very much uh, sort of typical, I think, in some ways. And I think the great anxiety for all of us, and maybe the great truth, because all of our kids are so individual, is that nobody has a normal childhood, nobody has a typical childhood, they have their own individual childhood, I think, in some ways as well. What's weird about that for a writer, I think, when writing about parenthood, is that fiction tends to be not made up of normal normal or typical experiences. You know, that's not where drama often lies. So there's an odd disjuncture between that feeling that we want to have something that seems very familiar for our children in their experiences and writing a fiction that feels as though it pushes our children and pushes our own experience of having children into extremis, I think, in some ways. So there's an odd tension going on in that space. I think for me, what's 
kind of going on in this book is that these characters, because of their various anxieties and because of their past experiences, they sort of yearn for that normality. So I hope there are aspects of the book, as I say, that, that do seem very familiar to other parents. I think there's a great universal quality to many of those things, but also makes us maybe appreciate those universal qualities because we understand how tenuous they are for some people and some characters. So true. You know, one part that I kept sort of inserting myself into and thinking like, how would I have handled this? What would I have done? Which I feel like you do, most readers do at some point or another while reading, right? But when you and your wife were debating, or not, sorry, when your character and the character's wife, sorry, were- I appreciate that. Okay, were debating whether or not after the fact to find out if the fetus had for sure this abnormality and you couldn't decide whether or not you wanted that information- and ultimately, I hope I'm not giving anything away. I mean, I don't have to. But anyway, you made a decision one way or, or another together and had to live with, now have had to live with that decision. Tell me about that. Like, what do you do if your spouse wants to know and you don't want to know? Or what do you do when there's information out there? Like, I felt like I wanted to call. <laughs> I wanted to call the test person and get the results of this, even though like, I was like, you know, maybe they don't want to know, but I would like to know the answer, you know. <laughs> sure. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, in a way that's, that's also what the book is about, right? It's about marriage. It's about the way that we can know somebody incredibly intimately and have spent a lot of time with that person. And yet still, when we come to these crucial moments, find ourselves, you know, on opposite sides of a feeling, on opposite sides of a divide in various ways. We feel as though some part Parts of our essential characters are revealed in those moments. But I think also part of a marriage is learning those things about one's spouse and living with them or finding a way collectively to live with those kind of differences that we go through. And so the book is, I think, very much about charting the ups and downs and the stresses placed on a marriage by these kind of circumstances we progress through those spaces. But I do think there's a way in which... You know, I think for these characters in this book, the uncertainty they're grappling with is, as I say, a sort of medical uncertainty, diagnostic uncertainty. But I think a lot of the times in our lives, we grapple with uncertainty, right? We don't have a sense of the sure thing. We don't have the 100% knowledge of a certain thing. We don't have perfect information. And I think that's very true for these characters. And I think it crops up in a lot of fiction, despite the fact that we often talk as writers about writing what you know. And of course, this book does in some de degree derive from lived experience. I think we often write into what we don't know. And in some ways also, maybe have to write books that live with uncertainty. You know, I think there's a way in which that's the nature of our lives in a way. Uh, and of course, I think that's been brought home very powerfully and painfully to many of us. And I know yourself, you, your family has gone through this too, uh, through the process of the pandemic of the last few months as well. So we've been grappling with not knowing when this will end, not knowing what it means, not knowing, again, uncertainties of diagnosis creep into this space as well. So it feels as though, although this is by no means the intention of writing the book, that it also hits that odd, timely note where we have a kind of global uncertainty that we're all grappling with now. It's so true. I feel like in the pandemic, I've had to rely, and probably most people, but when everyone's doing different things, where should we be? What do you feel is okay? What do I feel is okay? I'm not sure. Like, I feel like this is a time where I'm just like, okay, I just have to look inside myself and go with it because that's all I really have at the end of the day. Like everyone else could be wrong. Everyone else could be right. But like, I have to do what I feel comfortable doing, although not being led exclusively by anxiety. I feel like lately I haven't even wanted to leave the house. I'm like, this is fine. <laughs> I'm okay here. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of there are ways we think about, I studied this years ago, risk assessment, and it's sometimes about the statistics, but it's also a little bit about our emotions in response to that risk as well, right? It's the feeling that, you know, if somebody chooses to be a smoker, they're choosing to take that risk on for themselves. But if, you know, the government puts a nuclear power station nearby, even though that risk statistically might be a lot smaller than the risk from smoking, we feel that risk is being imposed upon us. So it's not just about the numbers, it's something about our emotional response to that space. And I think we're all grappling with that sense of not just how do we deal with the numbers, but also how do we emotionally process the numbers at this particular moment. The characters have to think about that. But I think we as a society are thinking about that too. It's so true. Yes. It's very timely in emotion for sure. Absolutely. And by the way, the wife in this book is so funny and likable. So I found myself wanting to take whoever this was out to coffee. So if she happens to exist, you know, tell this fictitious. I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, that's actually very, very moving to me because the wife in the book, at least in some part, is modeled on a wife that I know very well and <laughs> I love very deeply and who's sort of behind the door behind me <laughs> back there. You know, and I think I was very conscious writing the book. You know, you mentioned that it's a story about fatherhood, which is very much true. But, you know, the reason that I think there are fewer books that talk about parenting from the father's point of view is because we understand, of course, and I think it's very true, that the motherhood experience is in many ways, certainly the birth experience is so much more intense than the father's experience, I think, in so many ways. So I was sort of cautious and tentative a little bit, I think, in some ways, about trying to take on subjects like parenthood and certainly subjects like abortion from a male point of view. And I don't claim, of course, this is like a complete point of view, obviously. It's that one of the ways that the book is structured is written in these sort of short fragments that also leave a lot of space between those those sections. I think allows readers to read between the lines a little bit and sort of to think that this is not the whole story, of course, and that there's a story that the wife would tell in the novel and maybe even the son would tell eventually in the, in the book as well that I can't claim to access, but I'm trying to leave some space for so the readers might imagine what's going on with those characters in the background along the way as well and maybe fill in the gaps. It feels like the, you know, I'm a big believer in the way that the reader helps complete a book in some ways as well. So I'm hoping to leave some space in that territory. Although it's funny after that interruption, you know, I also think that some part of the structure of the book, the, the fact that it's written in sort of short sections, short vignettes, comes out of the parenting experience. You know, this book, although mostly written over the last three or four years. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma 
eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P com slash moms don't have time. The first chapter goes back about 10 years or so, I think. And it comes out of a time when I was trying to write when my son was pretty small. And so everything about the writing experience was sort of stolen in those moments where there was a nap or there was a small gap in that busy schedule you have when you're parenting. So something about the form of the book also, I think, comes out of the parenting experience. And the way I've digested it also comes out of the parenting experience where I can only, I read snippets and I have the book here and there and it's good. You know, I love all different types of books, but like I'm also reading now a book with multiple you know view- viewpoints where each chapter it shifts, and that's much harder. I, I still really enjoy it, but that's better if I have like a, a longer stretch of time so I can. But when I put it down and pick it up, I'm like, wait, wait, wait who is she? And then I have to flip back this book. Now you're like in it. I get it. Whatever. So was it easier? I mean, you have written all this historical fiction in the past, which I'm sure involved a great deal of research and time and digging and all of that. Was it like a breeze for you to do this or was it harder because you were going into more emotional territory or is that not even true? I mean, it's, it's difficult to compare. I think the historical work does require a lot of preparation. There's a lot of anxieties, right? But it's also a space where fact and fiction and where fact gives over to fiction feels like it's also an important question. So this, this book has some callbacks to that previous experience, I think. This was probably slightly easier in the actual writing experience. It took less time. It's a shorter book, of course, than my previous historical novels. But I think you're absolutely right to suggest that emotionally it was a tougher book. And I think maybe even, you know, while I've written about real historical figures in the past. And there are questions there ethically about how they're represented. We think about questions of appropriation that comes up in those spaces. It felt that those questions were much closer to home, literally speaking, in the context of this book. So there was a certain amount of anxiety and a degree of soul searching in those questions in the writing of this book. And to some degree, I think, as I often do, some of the things that I worry about when I'm writing a book, can I write this book? How do I write this book? Those questions ultimately in some ways become the subject of the book. So it feels as those questions sort of inhabit the book. And rather than having them stop me or censor me, it feels as though the book is an opportunity to explore and engage with those questions in some ways as well. And I love how you just put a lie in the title because I feel like all the best books are all like, in fact, I would say most stories are about some sort of secret. Either you're keeping it from yourself or someone's keeping it from you. There's like always a secret, which I think is a flip side sort of of a lie, right? Because you have to disguise that. So I don't know. I just feel like 
it just, it so touches on like this basic interest people have in reading about what is not straightforward and what you might not be able to say straight out and, and all of that. Yeah, it's the great mystery of fiction, right? That it feels as though it, it advertises itself as a lie. It's a fiction and invites us, I think, to think into, do I believe in this? What don't I believe in? You know, Where might my suspension of disbelief begin or end in some ways as well? But I think it's also one of the great, you know, we often talk about fiction as a kind of engine of empathy, which I think is true. And I, I buy into those ideas, the importance of that. But there's also a way in which I think the reading of fiction sharpens our sense of reality by engaging us with that sense of what might not be real, I think, in some ways as well. There's a strange way in which I think, and I thought about this particularly over the last three or four years, that the reading of fiction sort of sharpens our bullshit detector in a strange way, right? Mm -hmm. It feels as though it helps us figure out what's true and what's not, what to believe in or what not to believe in. So even as it plays with those, that sense of where the line lies, I think it also sharpens our, our feelings about reality as well. And how did you become a writer to begin with? Oh, you know, it's weird. I mean, I know this comes a little bit out of the book and the main character. He starts off as a physicist and I started off as a physicist, but my physics career, such as it was, at least as an undergraduate, was entirely derailed by, I think, some of the first really serious writing I did. I, I When I was younger and as a teenager, I wanted nothing more than to write science fiction. And if I'd been any good at it, I might still be doing that. But I wrote a story that was uh, you know, closer to home, more about my family. My grandmother was to suffer with dementia and it was a very difficult passage for the family to go through and for me as well. And by writing about it in fiction, I found I'd untapped something emotionally that I hadn't been previously aware was there in the fiction. So I wrote a story about that. It went on to be the first story that I published, although not for many years later. But even when I wrote it, I think I sense something of the power and the allure of fiction in doing that. So in a strange way, that story entirely derailed my physics career, I think. <laughs> Wow. So I guess we should keep all the novels away from potential <laughs> physicists. That's the lesson here. <laughs> what do you like to read? What types of books do you like? Oh, to? you know, it's funny. I think once I became a parent, I became very drawn to the idea of reading a lot of short books because it was very easy to get through them. So I sympathize with what you were suggesting earlier on. I think, too, there's a way, you know, we're talking about the interrupted, distractible life of a parent or a young parent, you know, and how they find time to read in that space or how they find the the, the bandwidth to, I think, just engage with the book in, in those kind of moments. I think, too, that that distractibility is a cultural phenomenon, right? I think there's something about the way that we read, even when we're reading the news or reading online, we're hopping around, right? It feels like the, the net and the web have become really interesting sort of metaphors of the way we hop from connection to connection to connection. There's a way in which we, when we engage with the world like that, are making our own novel. I'm going to jump from this link to this link to this link. And I do think there's a a body of work out there, a body of fiction that sort of begins to operate in those sort of elusive, connective ways. I think back to a, a book that I teach a great deal to my undergraduates almost every year, Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad, which has that same kind of elusive, connective quality. And I find that really interesting. It feels as though there's an interesting way that it makes... I always talk to them about how once they've read it, it sort of rewires their brains in interesting ways. Although I think in some ways, it's actually just playing into a rewiring of their brains that the world is engaging in in some ways for them as well. But I like that. I think I'm interested in that sense in which we're encouraged as readers to make connections between pieces that we're asked to fill the gaps in. Again, that sense of feeling as though we're collaborators with the author. So those are books that I'm really engaged in. Do you have more books in the works? Like what's coming next for you? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was writing this book, or at least finishing it sort of simultaneously 
loosely with another book that I'm working on. It's a, it's a nonfiction book, a kind of teacherly book, a craft book about the writing of fiction, but specifically about revision. It's called The Art of Revision, subtitled The Last Word, which is a bit ominous, but it, it's not quite as grim as that sounds. And, you know, I've been teaching for the best part of 25 years, so it feels like it's a distillation of those kind of things. But it felt a little as though, you know, as you know, in this new novel, the main character is also a writer and a teacher of writing. So there's a little bit of osmosis between these two projects, I think, in some ways as well. So that one will come out in November of this year. And I, my friends are like, oh, you've got two books coming out in the same year. But I have to admit, they're both very short books, as you know from this one. So it doesn't feel like it's quite as, as great an achievement of that, although it's, it's fun and I enjoy working on both of them. <laughs> I have um, I have two anthologies coming out this year, actually. Excellent. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I assembled them. But yeah, November. So I'll see you in the November party. That won't there we, That's a lot of work, though, assembling anthologies it like is. that. No, it like... is a lot of work. And it's great. And I'm really proud of them. And it'll be great. But, you know, it's not like I sat down and wrote them all. Right. Well, but it's a fun, you know, it also, I think, you know, it's the way I feel about even when I'm putting together a list of readings for a course, you're interested in the way that pieces and anthologies bounce off each other, mm. speak to each other. And I do think there's a way in which, and, you know, Visit from the Goon Squad calls back to this space as well. There's something about the way I'm interested in novels, I think, that borrow from not the structure of short stories per se, but from the structure of short story collections, mm -hmm. which I think do invite us to think about links, think about comparisons. And so, I, you know, anthologies do that work in really interesting ways. And again, it's a fun way of the brain moving laterally, I think, which is an interesting contrast sometimes to the linearity of some fiction as well. I like that. I might have to like steal that quote. <laughs> when describing anthology work, you have already started talking about this, and I'm sure you have a lot of views on revision. And I read your essay, I think it was called Done on, you know, how to oh, sure, yeah, right. and everything. But what advice would you have for aspiring authors, people who are just starting out? Well, this probably goes to some of the ways I think about revision. I think there's a way in which it's important for us to outweigh the project, outweigh the story, outweigh the book. I think we're all, much as we claim to love writing, there is a way in which we're often all of us in an unholy hurry to be finished with whatever we're writing. And I think that's understandable in a first draft, right? You know, we we sort of build that first draft. It's like a rickety bridge that we're constructing across the chasm of our doubt, right? That we feel <laughs> if we don't finish the bridge, it'll just fall into the chasm where we won't get to the end of this thing. And so I think it's really important often to move quite quickly in a first draft. And I sort of see students doing that. But you can also feel them, you know, at the end of that early draft, particularly if it's a story, they're like a sprinter who's dipping for the line, right? So we're, we're trying very hard to get across that line and get it built. Then afterwards in revision, though, I think it's really smart to to take some time to explore the work, maybe even to let it expand for a little bit. You know, I think, you know, we talked earlier on about that idea of writing what you know, but often we don't quite know what we know when we write a first draft. We're sort of feeling our way into that space. So the more we expand, I think, the more we sort of explore our own work, I think, in many ways. And I'm really interested in that idea, that sense of hanging out with the work long enough to understand what it's doing. And, and maybe ultimately, I think, figuring out why we wrote it in the first place. That's how I know that I'm finally done. I feel like I finally understand my own work, I think, in certain ways. And nearly always with different books, there's some late moment when I understand why something that seemed out of place or I wasn't quite sure why it was there, what work it was doing, it suddenly speaks back to me and says, oh, I'm here for this reason and this reason is essential. That's why you've hung on to me for as long as you have, I think. So the advice, you know, that I give to people, you know, there's so much, of course, but the, the line I like to quote is a line of Flaubert's, a line I think goes, the talent is long patience. And I think when I first heard that when I was, you know, quite a young writer, I didn't get it. I think I even 
even thought it was just a bad translation from the French. Talent is long patience. What does that mean? And because the older I get, the more I think I understand that. And I I try to talk about it often with young writers who, of course, you know, and I'm lucky I work with very talented young writers. Talent and youth are sort of the enemies of patience, I think. We often embrace talent as a as a shortcut, right? We don't need to have as much patience if we're talented. And I, I think that's part of the seduction of our feelings about talent. But I do think there's a way in which just being patient with ourselves and with our work, which feels like a a value that seems sometimes counterintuitive to the pace of modern life, I think, in some ways. It's a chance for the work to speak back to us and to the characters to speak back to us and for us to grow into the work and understand it. And, you know, in a certain fundamental way, it's about reading our own work carefully so that we allow it to speak back to us and we become readers of our own work and not just the writers of it. And maybe that's the fundamental essence of revision, that we move, it's an aspect of re-seeing, right, that we move from seeing it through the eyes of the writer who thinks they know what they're doing with it. And we come back to it and read it through the eyes of a reader. I always suggest that, and you must have got through this too, I'm sure, it's that moment, I think, when we share our work for the first time with somebody else, you know, a friend, a loved one, a critic, or we hit submit if we're sending it out to a magazine, or we hit submit if we're sending it to the editor or the agent. And even before we hear back from them, there's a moment, as soon as we've let go of it, we're like, oh shit, I should have fixed that, right? There's something that we recognize that we should have changed, that we meant to change, that we suddenly see in a different way. And it's because we intuit new eyes looking at it. And so that's the beginning of revision because we're starting to see it through the eyes of our imagined readers out there. It's true. I feel like revision is, I mean, it's the most important thing. And I feel like anytime like even for an essay, if someone, if I'm like, if I write a first draft that's a thousand words and I know I have to get it to 750 or something or 800, it's going to be much better. Like it always gets better when I cut it down, like inevitably. So I'm like, well, I don't know what that says. Maybe I just, just I have to keep it really brief. But I think the point is when you're more intentional about which words end up making it, you have to like have them sort of go up to the you know the battle line and fight to make their way in. And if they survive, then they're they make they have a place for themselves. So anyway. But you also wouldn't find those if you hadn't written long in the first place, right? So I think it's it's really important to allow ourselves to have that sort of expansive moment before we contract. So I'm often, yeah. you know, occasionally with young writers that I work with, there's that feeling that they think of a revision. Well, this is another parenting way of thinking about this, right? I feel when I encourage them to revise that I'm like their mom telling them to tidy their room, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like this is the boring work of writing. I've had all the fun creative stuff and now I have to do the dull thing. And I want to suggest to them that revision is also part of the creative process, right? It's an opportunity also for new discoveries to be made, new moments of creation to occur to them. And so I'm often encouraging them to take that piece and I guess the way I put it is to allow it to breathe out, sometimes to get a little bit longer than it needs to, and then in a subsequent draft to cut it back and so it breathes in. And that sense of the draft as this breathing, living thing feels like a kind of healthy way also to think about it. It's sort of like when I make sugar cookies with my kids, right? You need all that dough and you have to roll it all out. And then you put the cookie cutters in it and nobody ever says, oh, I shouldn't have made all that dough. You had to make the dough to get the perfect cookie. That's a great idea. That's a really good description of that. And actually also really helpful to me because I feel as though one of the struggles I have talking about revision sometimes with students is it can feel a little mysterious, right? You know, even that sense of I suddenly understood it was done or the character spoke back to me. These things seem a little mystical, I think, in some ways. So anything that sort of makes it seem more down to earth, I think makes it more tangible. So that's a great metaphor for that. I really like that idea of that. Well, um, can, I even talked to them that metaphor as often as you like if you. you 
tell the person you're you're talking to they have to listen to my podcast. That's my I will, only. Uh... I will do that. That's a deal. I like that. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, of course, we use it if it ever helps you. But yeah, I think it is kind of like that. Anyway, well, thank you so much for this chat. That was really fun, and I really truly enjoyed reading your book. Not the least because I could pick it up and put it down a thousand times before even finishing what two hundred pages or one hundred. I don't know. Anyway, it was great, and it was lovely getting to know you. So thank you for coming on my show. Thanks so much for having me, Zibi. It was a real pleasure chatting to you. I'll send you some sugar cookies one day. Thanks. Bye bye. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Under the Influence, a new podcast by author Joe Piazza. And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, and go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser, and I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.